Good morning, friends. I hope you're doing well today. It is Thursday, March 4th. Someone said this is the only year in the calendar that is also a command, March 4th. So that's funny. I thought it was funny anyway. It's a beautiful day in North Texas. Sunny skies, no clouds out there. I don't know how warm it's supposed to get today, but it's beautiful outside. Looks like spring has finally hit us, hopefully, and hopefully it stays. But uh, life is good. Life is good. And today we are studying Romans chapter 7. So we've studied the first six chapters of Romans. You can find those uh, right here on the Abiding Grace Facebook page. You can find the videos or you can find the podcast at the Grace Abides podcast. And if if you do download the and subscribe to the Grace Abides podcast and you enjoy it, invite you to tell others about it and write a, write a review. That would help too. So anyway. Romans chapter 7 uh, continues basically in the stream of thought that Paul has had since Romans, the, the second half of Romans 3, about grace. And so that's what we're going to study today. Okay, we are going to start with verses 2 through 4, which is a, a strange example that Paul gives us. It's strange. Let me say that. But it's an important lesson. So here we go. Starting in verse 2. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Okay, so what does this all mean? Why is Paul talking about marriage in Romans chapter 7? It's an example. You died to the law. So Paul makes the point that death ends obligations and contracts. That if that when you get married, it is until death do us part. And uh, once you die, that contract is over. So a wife is no longer bound to her husband if he dies because death ends that contract. So she's free from the contract that she made and from the law. So in this analogy, uh, I mean, this is Michelle and I, over the past year, we've watched through Downton Abbey four times, maybe five times. I don't know. It, it just, it's good. And there's this couple on there who uh, Mr. Bates, right, wants to get married to Anna, but he's married to someone else who, you know, this woman who was stolen from him and who has cheated on him and all this stuff. And it's like not until, until Mrs. Bates dies, Anna and Mr. Bates can't get married, right? This is really, and so they're kind of, you know, waiting for her to either accept a divorce or to die, which is really strange. But uh, in this analogy that Paul uses, we are the bride and the husband is sin and Christ is the one waiting for our husband to die. So in this analogy, we are Mr. Bates and Mrs. Bates is sin and Anna is Christ waiting for sin to die so that Mr. Bates and Anna can be together. How the the theology of Downton Abbey. How about that? (laughs) So yeah, but basically Christ is waiting for sin to die so that we can be together. Because right now, when we live this life, we are in a contract with sin. But in reality, 
we have already died to sin. In our baptisms, we are dead to sin and free from our obligations to the law uh, and sin. So through baptism, we're already dead to sin. Uh, Through baptism, we have already broken the contract and sin is dead so that we can continue to live with Christ. Is this analogy helpful for you? Uh, As I said, it's pretty weird. It's pretty weird, but I mean, it, it, it helps make the point of what Paul is trying to say, uh, that um, we are dead to the law as far as it represents our place before God, right? And so we cannot be freed from the law uh, so that we can live unto ourselves, right? So that we can do whatever we want, so that we can live a life of chaos and anarchy. We're free so that we can be married, we can be united with Jesus and bear fruit for God. Um I, you know, it's a, it's a weird analogy, but but I think it works. I think it works, and it helps us to understand what that means. So through our baptisms, we die to sin, but we are united with Christ. We are one with Christ for the rest of our life, and so then um, we are not we are we are dead to the law so far as uh, how the law represents our standing uh, before God. So how, how, how we can stand before God and say, look at me, I'm righteous. I'm good. Well, no, you're not. Uh, and the law only condemns and convicts, uh, but the grace of God, uh, makes us righteous, makes us holy, makes us stand before God in such a way that God says, you are my beloved child. And I see you as a saint, not a sinner. So yeah, life is weird. Good point, Tina. Life is weird. And this, this analogy is a little weird, but, um, you know, it make it helps. It makes sense. So, there you go. There's verses two through four. So we'll go through seven to eight. Verses seven to eight. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, "You shall not covet." But sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting for apart from the law sin was dead apart from the law sin was dead so uh paul describes this dynamic where uh if our if if the entirety of our relationship was god was with god was based on don't do that don't do that don't do that and don't do that um then we would immediately want to do what? That, that, and that. It's like, we want to do what we're told not to do, right? You, you tell a child not to do something, and be like, oh, I hadn't considered it before, but now I want to. I had never thought of doing that, but now I want to, right? I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. I wouldn't have wanted to touch the hot stove, but you said not to touch it. Now I want to touch it. Right. And so uh, the sin, the, the law itself is not sinful, but it shows us what sin is. Right. It tells us what sin is. And now that we know what sin is, we're like, ooh, why can't we do that? It must be really fun if we can't do it. Right. Uh, and then he says, sin seizes the opportunity afforded by the commandment to produce in me every kind of coveting. It seizes the opportunity. Uh, the, the law leads to an understanding, so it remains important, but it also leads to this, the sin grabs hold of the opportunity. Once we know the difference between right and wrong, sin says, choose wrong. The sinfulness says, choose wrong. And we can see how 
knowing the difference between right and wrong, people still choose wrong every day and how we still choose wrong all the time. We see how this great gift that God has given us of love can be turned into lust, right? We see how this gift of and privilege of authority can be turned into corruption. And I'm not just talking about in the political, I'm talking everywhere, right? In business, wherever you are, in church, you might be given authority and you turn that into corruption or, or manipulation. We see how independence, right, can be turned into greed and selfishness. Uh, we, we see how this plays out all the time, how seizing the opportunity, how sin seizes the opportunity. Uh, he says it again in first, verse 11. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. Knowing the difference between right and wrong, sin is going to speak into our ear, do wrong, do wrong. Wrong is fun. Wrong is better. Do wrong. And, well, what does Paul have to say about that? We're going to get to that in the next uh, next piece here. Okay, verses 14 through 18. Paul confesses. I mean, this refreshing honesty. Refreshing honesty from, from someone who, based on some of the things he said, he's like, oh, wow, this guy's so self-righteous. This guy thinks he's perfect. Well, not really. <laughs> not at all. Verses 14 through 18. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I mean, imagine imagine a group of Christians who have been told their whole lives that, you know, your, your place before God is based on your ability to do what is good, on your ability to do what is right, on your ability to become righteous for yourself. And then you have this religious leader, Paul, who, who writes this, I can't do good. I want to, but I can't. I just can't. There is, there's no way. I, I am unable to do it. You know, Paul sees that the law does not help him. The law only points to his sinfulness, plain and simple. It just makes him feel guilty. The law can only help you if you're innocent, plain and simple. If you're guilty, the law is going to make you feel guilty. Um, and, and the law argues against each and every one of us. The law points out all our failures. Martin Luther said, that is the proof of the spiritual and wise man. He knows that he is carnal and he is displeased with himself. Indeed, he hates himself and praises the law of God, which he recognizes because he is spiritual. But the proof of a foolish carnal man is this, that he regards himself as spiritual and is pleased with himself. Say that again. The proof of a foolish man is this, that he regards himself as spiritual and is pleased with himself, that he regards himself as spiritual and that he is a good person. That is the proof of a foolish man. So I am spiritual and I'm a good person. You know, Luther says that it's not possible. I mean, that's the proof of a spiritual and wise man is that, that he knows God and he thinks that he is utterly undeserving of God's love and that he is not 
by any means able to become righteous on his own. That's what it means to be spiritual and wise. So, so we look at Paul's problems here. Paul's problem isn't a lack of desire. Paul wants to do what is right. Paul's problem isn't a lack of knowledge. He knows what the right thing to do is. His problem is a lack of power. He lacks the power to do what is right because the law gives no power. There is no power in the law, right? It's just a, this is right and this is wrong. And there's no transformation in that. Telling somebody what to do and what not to do, there's no transformation in that. There's no power in that. All you make them want is, well, I want to do what you tell me not to do because I'm rebellious, right? C.S. Lewis says, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried to be good. No man knows how bad he is until he tries to be good. Uh, so when we learn the law, we're like, okay, I'm going to try and do the right things now. Right? That, that's one of my problems with Lent is that in Lent, like, I'm going to be a better person now. You know, it's Lent. I'm going to stop doing these things or I'm going to stop eating these things or whatever. I'm going to stop doing because I'm going to try and be a better person. But in reality, C.S. Lewis says, the more we try, the harder we try to be better people, the more we realize how bad we are, the more we realize how difficult it is and say, well, I'm not going to, I'm not good at it. I'm not good enough. I can't do it. I can't do it. Um, you know, the, the law doesn't get power. Now, now, I know there's probably a lot of people who believe that the law does give them power. And they believe that because of this. They believe that the law gives them power, not because it tells them that they're better, that they're good enough, but it tells them that they're better than someone else. Right? Oh, well, you know, I know what the law is. And okay, I'm, I'm better than others. And so I'm going to take advantage of it. I'm going to manipulate others. I'm going to make others feel bad. And I'm going to let them know that I'm better than them. Right? That's, that's a misuse of the law. That's a misuse of the law. Okay, verses 24 and 25. Paul finishing up. Verse seven, chapter 7. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my spiritual nature a slave to the law of sin. I'm sorry, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin of sin. I love, I mean, Paul is completely worn out and wretched because he's tried, he's tried to follow the law. He's tried to please God through the law and he's been unable and he's just worn out. He's wretched. He's exhausted. It's not possible. I know people are, I mean, we're going on a year now with this pandemic and people are, I'm worn out. I'm done. I can't take it anymore. You know, I want to go sit at a restaurant without a mask on. I want to, I want to go to a movie theater and enjoy popcorn. And, you know, I, I want to do the things I used to do. I want to go to a baseball game, right? I want to go to a baseball. I want to see the Rangers new stadium. I want to see the Tigers when they come into town, right? I'm, I'm worn out. I'm tired of it. I can't do it anymore. That's legalism. Paul says, I have tried. I have tried to please God on my own. And I can't do it. I can't try anymore. I've tried as hard as I can, and I can't do it. See, legalism always brings a person to face their own sinfulness, their own wretchedness. And if they continue, they will react in one of two ways. They're either they're going to deny their sinfulness, they're going to pretend that it's not there, they're going to pretend that they're better than everyone else, and they're going to become self-righteous like a Pharisee, right? Or if they continue, they're going to come to the realization that they're never going to please God. They're honest with themselves. 
They're honest with others about their failures. They're going to come to the realization they're never going to please God, and they're just going to stop trying. I can't do it. It's too hard. I'm done trying, right? And so Paul, desperate for deliverance from this legalistic understanding of how to please God, is overwhelmed with a sense of his own powerless, powerlessness and sinfulness, but then finds victory in Jesus. Finds victory in Jesus. Jesus pulls him out of that. Pulls him out of that struggle. Jesus pulls Paul out of this, this wretchedness, right? This exhaustion. Jesus didn't come and die just to give us more or better rules, but to give us his victory. His victory that he earned through sacrificial love for us. His victory over sin, death, and the devil. His sacrificial love, the victory that he won, that transforms, that changes. That makes people say, wow, I think I'm going to do better, not because I'm earning anything, but because I'm so grateful for what God has already done for me. See, this victory doesn't come to us through theological education or religious motivation or any of the, it comes through Jesus. It comes through Jesus, through being in relationship with Jesus, believing in Jesus, uh, living a life for Jesus, discipleship, following Jesus, knowing that Jesus is with you, um, it comes through Jesus. And so uh, for Paul, it's all about Jesus. And we thank God for Paul and we thank God for all that God has done for us. So we will stop there. And uh, next week, next Tuesday, we will continue with Romans chapter eight and we'll close with a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, we are sinful people and we are grateful that you have forgiven us. We are, we are grateful that you have uh, given us victory over sin, death, and the devil, that you have uh, promised us the gift of eternal life. Uh, we thank you for the sacrifices that you have made uh, and pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, share your light and love with others. Uh, let them know of your grace uh, and let them know that uh, uh, they are loved just as they are. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody, y'all have a great week, a great weekend, and we will see you soon. Worship this weekend, 9 o'clock outside, 11 o'clock inside. Uh, look forward to having you join us if you can. If not, uh, we will see you online and see you next week. Take care of yourselves.